0: The first reading is from the book of Joshua, chapter 4, and it's verses 19 to 24. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho, and Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites in the future when your descendants ask their parents what do these stones mean tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over the Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. The second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 to 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And the third reading is from Second Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 to 14. I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame, because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: First, I'd like to thank uh, Philip for so sensitively leading this service, uh, to Sue for that very powerful reading of those three passages in Scripture, and um, our musicians for uh, leading, I think, our singing with both power and, I think, uh, sensitivity uh, this morning. Memory work. It's 1987. And nearly 50 years have come and gone since that night in November 1938. And Elie Wiesel is addressing the German Reichstag, the parliament of the old German empire. A half century or so ago on that very day, Thursday the 10th of November, mobs had infiltrated the streets of Nazi Germany and had ransacked Jewish homes throughout the country. It was the famous Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass. Over 90 Jews were murdered. 1,668 synagogues were ravaged. And 30,000 Jewish men were carried off to concentration camps. The horrors of that night were forever etched on the memory of Elie Wiesel, Novelist, writer, Nobel Prize winner, and Holocaust survivor. We remember Auschwitz and all that it symbolizes, he told his audience that night in Germany, because we believe that salvation, like redemption, can only be found in memory. You see, for Eli Wiesel, memory has a saving power, a kind of saving power. This is what he said. In remembering, you will help your own people vanquish the ghosts that hover over your history. Remember, he says, a community that does not come to terms with the dead will continue to traumatize the living. Well, I've no doubt there's a lot of truth in what Elie Wiesel has to say. But at the same time, don't you think, memory is just as likely to enslave us as it is to liberate us. I mean, memories can debase us every bit as much as dignifying us. You see, I think that dealing with the past is not just about remembering. It's about how to remember the right way. It's about how we should remember. Now, now surely in Northern Ireland we know all about that. I mean, we have an excess of memories in Northern Ireland. Some of them are enshrined in public artworks. Philip referred to some of them. War memorials, wall murals, memorial gardens and the like. And the thing is, in a place like Northern Ireland, often they're contested. Tragedy for one side is triumph for the other. One group's honour is the other side's humiliation. Fidelity for one is treachery for the other. So sure, memories can heal, but memories can also hurt. They can make us free or they can keep us fettered. We can be dignified by them, or we can be diminished by them. Now, one way or another, I think, modern society is preoccupied with memory whether it's to do with the juicy memoirs of politicians or the recovery of horrific memories of child abuse, whether it's the Commission for Victims and Survivors or whether it's just romantic journeys down on the Orient Express. Either way, memories all around us. Francis and I were in Vancouver a few weeks ago and when we were there, we stumbled into one of our favorite little bookstores in a place called Kerlsdale. As I stood... We stood looking at the new arrivals that had uh, just come into the bookstore, and I was amazed at the number of them that referred to memory one way or another in their titles. Memory Wall, The Woman Who Could Not Forget, The Forgotten Walls, A Memoir of Captivity, The Forgotten Garden. All of these made me wonder, what role should memory play in authentic Christian experience. So that's what I want to have a stab at working with you around this morning because I'm convinced that attending in the right way to memory is of critical, vital importance to the spiritual life of Christianity and of Christians in the 21st century. Now now this this is entirely preliminary, it's just a rough draft. But my hope is that if we can get started on this journey, it might just bring us to a better destination. So I have simply three thoughts this morning, and they revolve around just these three ideas duty, freedom, and peril. Duty, freedom, peril. One, duty. One of the themes that runs, I think, like a high-voltage current through the Bible is that God remembers the forgotten. He remembers those who are weak, who are vulnerable, and are out of sight. Psalm 67 is just a single isolated example. It describes Israel's God, and I quote, as a father of the fatherless, a defender of the widows. God, you see, has a special place in his heart, For the forgotten ones of this world, the little ones, the ones who are overlooked, the ones who are ignored, the ones that the powerful ride roughshod over, and he calls us to remember them as well. Now, to remember the forgotten, of course, it's not just a matter of sort of waiting around, hopefully, until they pop into our minds. To think of memory that way is to think of memory as a very passive thing. It's something that happens to us, but I think that's not the whole story. I mean, of course it is that. Things do jump into one's mind and so on, but, but memory, I think, is actually an active thing. And, and, and you can detect that from the very word itself, remember. It is to re-member. It is to put things back together again. It is to re-collect, recollect. It is to reassemble. It means active, hard work of consciously and positively bringing things back together again and remembering them in our remembering. We've got to go out of our way to look for those who are forgotten. We've got to go out of our way to hear the stories of those who are forgotten because, because they lie on the margins of our world. They lie on the margins of history, and I think that's true of, of groups and communities as well as of individuals. I think about the famous Columbus's encounter with the Americas in in what 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. How should we remember such an event? How, how should we put it back together again? What was it? Was it a voyage of discovery, or was it a voyage of genocide? Was it a moment of triumph, or was it a moment of disaster? All depends who's speaking, right? You see, we we tend to learn history from the side of the the victors, from the side of the losers. We never hear the story. Remember, we Europeans succeeded in wiping out 90% of the peoples of the Americas. Now, we need to be in the business of recollecting, Recalling, remembering the stories of the defeated, of the marginalized. The great philosopher Paul Ricoeur, speaking out of his own Christian heritage, I think, once observed this, that if we are to benefit from the blessing of forgiveness, we have got to make good on this promise, and I quote him, we've got to keep alive the memory of suffering over against the general tendency of history to celebrate the victors. God remembers the conquered. He remembers the crushed. He remembers the downtrodden. Do we? So here's the first imperative. We have a duty to remember the forgotten. Secondly, however, isn't it possible to remember too much. It's our own uh, celebrated um, Irish playwright, Brian Friel, who, who once made this observation. To remember everything is a form of madness. When we remember too much, memory is destructive. It, it sort of goes wild. It goes feral. Now, haven't we all met people like that? Maybe we're like that. People who just can't let the past go. They can't get over some bitter memory. Maybe the memory of an insult. Maybe the memory of an offense. Maybe the memory of someone snubbing you. Maybe even being wronged in a much more serious way and we can't get past it. What's more, maybe we deliberately keep it alive. Maybe we nurse the memory of a a grievance. Maybe we cherish it. Maybe we cultivate it. Maybe we wallow in it. And then we're eaten up by it. The memory festers, and it embitters. I think that if we allow memories of wrongdoing against us to keep us bitter, it will completely erode our humanity. The Croatian-born theologian Miroslav Volf has a very interesting thing to say about this. I'll read it slowly. To fully triumph, evil needs two victories, not just one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory is when evil is returned. He goes on. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. Now when we let our memories run a riot, when we let them scheme and connive and plot revenge, evil's second victory is secured. Evil has us by the throat. Of course there are other memories too that keep us being torn apart. Not just grievances this time, but, but memories of dark things that we've done that shame us. Dark voices from the past, guilty secrets, troubling flashbacks. And, and you know, if you're like me, often, often these creep unbidden into your consciousness. They slink in from the shadows of your imagination and they ambush you completely unawares the memory of them cuts us to the quick. Remembering them brings a flush of humiliation to our cheeks. Maybe, maybe an act of selfishness or a cruel word. Maybe an act of betrayal or ugly greed or rank cowardice. Maybe that superbly brilliant piece of rotten sarcasm and we're brought low. Now, those memories can be good for us if they remind us of our frailty. They can bring us down from our high horse. They can humble us. But, you know, I don't think God wants us to be disabled by them. He doesn't want us to be captured and immobilized by them. He wants us to deal with them and then relegate them to the attic of our memories. I think He wants us to follow His example. Listen to Isaiah 43. I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Or from Hebrews 10, uh, and their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. I mean, of course, God knows everything he remembers, everything from beginning to end. But here's what he's he's saying. He will not purposely remember them. He will not recollect them. He will not gather them up again. He will not keep a ledger of our failings. He will not data log our defects. What a blessing that is. Of course, other memories can be disabling as well. We had Nick Walterstorff here a few weeks ago, and I remember reading something he wrote about the way in which do you have these Regrets, regrets can be crippling. Nick is uh, reflecting here on the tragic death of his son Eric in a mountaineering accident and the regrets that inevitably flood into the mind of a bereaved parent. Here's what he has to say. And what of regrets? I shall live with them. I shall accept my regrets as part of my life, to be numbered among my self-inflicted wounds, but I will not endlessly gaze at them. I will not endlessly gaze at them. I shall allow the memories to prod me into doing better with those who are still living, and I shall allow them to sharpen the vision And intensify the hope for that great day coming when we can all throw ourselves into each other's arms and say, I'm sorry. You see, forgetting is not just an absence. It's a presence. What I mean is that some things, of course, just slip away from our memories and we have little control over that. But forgetting, I think, can also be a conscious act, a dealing with the past are relegating it to a space where we don't go visiting anymore. Think of it this way. Forgetting is not so much about amnesia. It's about amnesty. It's about letting go. It's about relinquishing the past. Recur is helpful here to get. Listen. The duty to forget is a duty to go beyond anger and hatred. And I think I would add... It's a duty to go beyond shame and regret and anguish and grief. There's a freedom in remembering to forget. If there's freedom in remembering to forget the past, this is my main point today, there are grave perils in forgetting to remember the things that we should. One of the most striking things about how the Bible deals with issues of memory is just how critical and vital remembering of the right kind is to the life of faith. That passage, said Sue read for us this morning, when the children of Israel left Egypt, for the, the first thing that God commanded them to do was what? to take up 12 stones from the River Jordan and to set them up as a kind of public piece of artwork. Why? On your order of service, Joshua 4.21. In the future, when your descendants ask your fathers, what do those stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. The stones were an aid to memory. Without the aid to memory, the children of Israel would forget. Every time they saw those 12 boulders, they would recall their freedom from Egypt. Without them, their children and their children's children would forget. They'd lose the memory. These simple objects, a dozen boulders, they were fundamental to the Jewish way of life. Now that's not an isolated case. During the harvest in ancient Israel, the people were commanded to leave some grapes on the vine for the fatherless and for the widows. Why were they asked to leave some grapes on the vine? Deuteronomy tells us, it will remind you that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. It was a ritual. It was a custom. It was a practice. It was a tradition. Exodus 13 tells us that every year during the month that the Israelites left Egypt, they had to eat unleavened bread for seven days. Why would they do that? Exodus tells us, On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand, like a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord is to be on your lips. The practice was a stimulus to memory. Without the practice, without the custom, without the tradition, they'd forget. They'd lose their way. They would wither. Now, examples of this abound in the New Testament as well. Who read the passage about the importance of the Lord's Supper as a means of remembering. You see, God knows how easily we forget the very things we should remember. And so these are put in place to keep the memory alive. Without them, we lose something vital. We jettison those traditions at our grave peril. Now, we all know how tragic it is when somebody loses their memory. When memory goes, a person begins to lose a sense of who they are. They begin to lose the sense of their identity. They even lose a sense of themselves, I think. Now, it's the same for a church. A church without a memory is a church experiencing spiritual Alzheimer's disease. Now, I've already said that remembering is about consciously putting things back together. Remembering. And, and, you know, that gives us, I think, a clue to the opposite of remembering. What's the opposite of remembering? Well, I mean, of course, it's, it's forgetting, but, but it's more, isn't it? The opposite of remembering is dismembering. When we don't consciously remember, we begin to dismember. When we don't consciously recall the vital things to our lives, we become... Fragmented, disorientated, dismembered. And a church that does that is like a person whose memory is evaporating. The church is fundamentally a community of memory. We share a narrative. We share a story. We share a destiny. We share a memory. We carry on a tradition. We are the bearers of a great treasure. But if we have failed to attend to the customs and practices of which we are the heirs, then we lose our identity, we fragment, we we dismember. Now, if we do not pass these practices on to our children, if we do not stock their minds with the memories, they will have no stability, and they'll drift away without moorings. That's why the Apostle Paul is so concerned in that letter to Timothy, which which Sue read, that we should pass on what he calls the deposit of faith that he'd received. Timothy is to treasure, to cherish, to safeguard this great deposit, this great tradition that has been passed on to him. Listen, this is what Paul says. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit. Who lives in us. In this church, as in every other, we are called to be custodians of that deposit. We are to be guardians of the memory. We are to be stewards of this great tradition. Now, I mean, of course, it doesn't mean for a minute that we're to be uncritical of our traditions, just perpetuating them for no reason other than we've always done something that way. No, 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 not that at all. We've got to be in dialogue with them. We should never confuse traditionalism with tradition. Someone put it this way. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Of course, we don't have to be bound into traditionalism, but it does mean this. Before we simply throw out something, some tradition, we should pause and say, why did people do that in the past? Was there a reason for that custom that we're missing? If we pitch out that, will something spiritually vital disappear? I mean, you can perfectly well imagine the grandson's And the granddaughters of those who crossed the Jordan saying, What the dickens are those old stones for? (laughs) Past their sell-by date. Bit tatty. Let's get rid of them. You can imagine their children's children saying during that week of eating unleavened bread, Why should we do that? Why should we eat unleavened bread for seven days? Let's get pizza instead. And suddenly something vital is lost. It just evaporates. Without anybody noticing. Now, I'm fully aware that in our own day the word tradition doesn't go down too well. It smells fusty. As the great theologian Tom Oden once put it, people nowadays are more attracted to the trendy ideas of minor modern heretics rather than to the available power of the Christian heritage. Our society, he explains, is, is xenophobic towards the past. It adores today, worships tomorrow, and loathes antiquity. We've an uphill struggle. As a community of memory, we've an uphill struggle. I recently heard a sermon by by Jack Rhoda. Some of you might remember Jack. He exchanged pulpits here one summer with Ken quite some years ago. And in this sermon, Jack referred to a book of essays by the great American novelist Flannery O'Connor. It's called Mystery and Manners. Mystery and Manners. Now, now, now what uh, Jack said that uh, Flannery Conner was after was this, that, that the manners have to fit with the mysteries. Uh, he used the idea of something like this. The manner in which we conduct our lives should be congruent, should be consistent with the mystery of our existence before God. The manner in which we observe the faith, the practices that we install in our worship culture, the habits that become the vehicles of praise, these have to fit. These have to resonate with, they have to be commensurate with, the great mysteries of our faith, with the stunning mystery of the incarnation, the resurrection and redemption, with our life before the face of God. The manner of our doings, must fit with the mystery of our creeds. They have to chime. They have to cohere. The practices have to be appropriate to the profound mysteries that we proclaim. Now, only when that happens, is a wonderful phrase, when that happens, this is what Jack says, the habits of our worship become the habitations of the Spirit. The habits of our worship become the habitations of the Spirit. What does he mean? When we get it right, the forms of our praise become the dwelling place of God's Spirit. The practices of our worship become the very site of Christ's presence with us. When the manners are attuned to the mysteries, the habits of worship become the habitations of the Spirit. I'm almost done. When we don't install those habits, critical things get forgotten. When we don't install these practices in the routines of our communal spiritual life together, the mysteries, they just evaporate. I've already mentioned Nick Walterstorff. Twenty-five years ago, Nick wrote a remarkable essay on the liturgies of the church. And here's here's how he concluded. The liturgy of the Christian church is for blowing trumpets of joy over our experience of the world as a gift of God. But he says there needs to be room for something else, for the rubbing on of the ashes of repentance over our disobedience to God. And there also have to be moments for crying the tears of lament over the suffering of the world. That's what our liturgy should be about. Trumpets, Ashes, tears. That's what our Sunday services, our practices are to be about. Every service we engage in needs to have a place for them. For joy, for contrition, for pain, for jubilant proclamation, for sorrowful repentance, and for profound grief at a botched world, for trumpets for ashes, for tears. Well, to begin this kind of retrieval, we've got to engage in memory work. We've got to do this as individuals. We've got to do it as a community. We've got to do it as a church. You see, as a company of Christ people, really, we should be in the, Philip, don't mind me saying this, we should be in the memory management business. Often, we need to be reminded of the forgotten of the earth. We need to remember those on the margins. Regularly, we need to bury some memories. Put them in a place of forgetfulness. Let them dissolve. Let them dismember. Let them disintegrate. But, my friends, always, always, we need to be the stewards of memory. Custodians of the practices guardians of that great deposit entrusted to us. And so, may we have the discipline to remember the forgotten. May we pluck up the courage to remember to forget. And may we see the grave danger in forgetting to remember. And may God grant us the wisdom to know the difference.